Catholics and Protestants have, for a very long time now, have portrayed the death of Christ differently. You're aware that a, a, a Roman crucifix presents Christ as still on the cross, writhing in agony and pain. But a Protestant cross is empty, indicating that the work on the cross is done. That was, uh, that was a temporary condition for Christ, and, and he moved on from there to conquer sin and rules in victory today. The empty cross can, can rejoice in that. And those differences are significant. They, they represent a major theological distinction between the two groups. One actually thinks the work of Christ is ongoing. There is more to be done week after week, that sacrifice. Whereas the other sees that as a completed work. There is nothing else for Christ to do to achieve our atonement. Now, something occurred to me just this past week, not about the death of Christ, but about the birth of Christ. When it comes to how we portray the death, there's a significant difference, but the two groups seem to portray the birth of Christ in about the same way. A baby in a manger, or a baby in his mother's arms. Now, those are all scriptural truths. He did occupy that role, but it was temporary as well. It was also a means to an end. And yet every year, we're focused again on his condition at the moment he arrived. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting that we change out this tradition, this biblical-based uh, uh, tradition uh, for something else. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see much uh, appealing to an empty manger. I mean, I love a baby as much as the next person. And, and there is something endearing about that. Uh, but there's also, I think, a, a liability that we need to be aware of because it's our responsibility to overcome that liability to make sure that those that we talk to, and even ourselves, and how we reflect on Christmas, that our focus is not on his helplessness. That is reality, even as the lady sang, uh, he was likely not even aware of all that was going on. He was a real baby. He had all the limitations that every other human baby uh, are, uh, is born with. And, and so those limitations were real, but they were temporary. It's who he went on to become and what he went on to do. And that even at Christmas, needs the emphasis, as was the emphasis of our concert last week. Our choir and orchestra did a marvelous job of making it clear that he only entered this world as a baby, which, of course, was the only way he could be a part of the human race, and that's the only way he could die for our sin. 
So it's crucial that he came as a baby. But it's also crucial that we are clear, that we walk away even from Christmas celebration itself with the point of what he accomplished while he was here on this earth. I mean, as long as a baby is the image, that does seem to dominate. When, there, when there's a baby in the room or a baby in the house, uh, it, 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 it attracts the uh, appropriate attention. But here in the, the account we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 25, Already, just a short time after the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, they have moved on now to Jerusalem to, for, the, for their own purification and for the baby's dedication. And already, there's somebody there in Jerusalem who, is, who has a clear view beyond the babyhood and he has an idea, a really clear idea that he needs to communicate about what this baby is going to do. Now, Mary and Joseph have already heard a lot of this. They're already aware of his destiny as the king of Israel, as the savior of the world. But they needed this reminder. I would imagine in these first few weeks, neither one of them are used to having a baby in the home. And that's been attracting all of their attention. Well, they needed the reminder. And God's people need the reminder. And the world needs the reminder of who this child is and what he has come to do. So there is an important message in this passage today, and that is that Jesus is the only way to real life. He is the key to that. He is essential for that. And both by the pattern of the life of the man sharing these things with Mary and Joseph in this passage, Simeon, by the pattern of his life and what he has to say about Jesus, both make it clear that our responsibility, our response to the truth about Christ is to submit to his plan, his individual plan for you, and what that means in your life. So let's start with verse 25. It's Begins, Luke begins by introducing this man, well aware that we've never heard of him before. What do we need to know about Simeon? Well, the key factor seems to be that Simeon was the recipient of a fairly unusual aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament. There were people in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit indwelled. There were some that that indwelling seemed to be long-term. There are others that it seems to be only a short-term for a particular purpose. But for the most part, God's people in the Old Testament did not have the experience 
that we see Simeon have here and Simeon's experience with the Holy Spirit seems to be quite parallel to our own now in the church age where everyone who trusts Christ as Savior has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That seems to be what's going on and that receives the highlight in this description of this man, Simeon. So, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man, here comes the description of his character. This man was righteous and devout, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What's it mean to be righteous and devout? Well, here's a man that was obedient to God's word. He's doing what is right. To be devout, that means devoted to God, devoted to God's plan. He's obedient to the word. He's devoted to the Lord and apparently to a fairly unusual degree. This is not portraying Simeon as perfect. It's not that he has achieved uh, every aspect of sanctification that is possible. No doubt he still had work to do. But this is the overall characteristic of his life. He's righteous, he's devout, He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, he's longing for the messianic deliverance. And he seems to understand that that messianic deliverance is not limited to or even primarily for military conquering of the hated Romans. He seems to understand that his first role of the Messiah will be to save his people from their sins. He's come to an understanding that the vast majority of Jewish people in his day didn't quite get. So how does Simeon know these things? How does Simeon do these things day after day, a life of righteousness and devotion? All seems to be explainable by the last part of verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Spirit here was preparing his life for Christ because that's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit is doing today. That's what the Spirit wants to do in your life through this passage. Prepare your life for Christ to devote yourself more earnestly to him, to commit yourself more fully to obeying what God's word says. These are our ambitions. They are the Holy Spirit's ambitions. He's the enabler that can help us do that. He provides the grace to live for God. He provides the grace to trust God, to look to this uh, consolation of God's people, the work of the Messiah. Verses 26 and 27 still focused on uh, what the Holy Spirit does in Simeon's life. He directs the heart to Christ. Look what he's done in Simeon's heart. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't know what else Simeon may have done in service for the Lord throughout his lifetime. No doubt that would have been significant. We would love to know, but apparently we don't need to know. What we need to know is that out of whatever else he did for the Lord, he had this, perhaps his very last responsibility, and that is to point to Christ when he arrives. I don't know how long he's been waiting for this. How long has he known that this is his assignment? We don't even know how old he is. Is he very old or is, is that maybe he still has more to do? He seems to think this is the last thing on his uh, assignment list from the Lord, his last task. But it's still the Holy Spirit at work. This doesn't have to be some miraculous voice speaking. This could be nothing other than the Holy Spirit impressing on Simeon's heart. I've got one more thing for you to do. The, whole, the, the, the Messiah is going to be born, and you must not only see him yourself, what a privilege, you must point to him and tell others what he's going to do. Now, how's that parallel anything in our lives? Well, the Holy Spirit is directing Simeon in his, in his assignment from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit still does that. Whatever your assignment might be, whatever components are part of that, whatever is the, the major as well as the minor things that God has for you to do in serving him, the Holy Spirit is key in directing you to discern that role. Furthermore, in verse 27, he also provides the guidance to do that. He can arrange the circumstances so that you are in the right place at the right time with the right equipment, spiritual gifts, to do exactly what God has assigned to you. Verse 27, he came in the spirit a third reminder of the Spirit's role in, in, in his life. He came in the Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit said, you need to go to the temple today. Uh, apparently, this was not a, a regular uh, uh, part of his daily routine, but he had to go today. So in the Spirit, he came in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, and that was his dedication to the Lord. He's the firstborn. Every firstborn belongs to the Lord. So they came to do that. Simeon came to do something else. Now, we put all that together. Clearly, the Holy Spirit, uh, that Jesus is the center of the Spirit's ministry. If Simeon was experiencing much the same relationship with the Holy Spirit as we have today, well then here's the pattern for us. Let the Holy Spirit prepare your life to serve Christ. Let him guide your steps 
not just in the long term, but day by day, hour by hour, the Holy Spirit always there, always knows the next thing for you to do, the next opportunity for you to serve, the next words you need to say. And he's always there providing that direction. Not too long ago, my GPS reported that there was going to be a delay on my route because of uh, uh, traffic being a little heavier than usual. Well, I looked at the route, and there's a, 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 there's a shortcut that we use. Actually, we use it quite often, but the GPS never knows about it somehow. It is a, you know, a little bit longer around, but if there's a, a traffic stop, this is a, a great help. So I looked at that, and oh, that wasn't going to quite do it because it was going to empty out onto the regular route where the traffic was still backed up. But I had one more shortcut in mind, one seldom used, but I, that would take me out and, and come out a little bit further where there wasn't any traffic. Okay, so I tore into that. It was also a little bit longer, but I can avoid the traffic. So uh, in my... Uh, so I, 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 I took that, that turn and was surprised to see that it brought me in about two minutes right back to where I had started. <laughs> it was a circle. It turns out it was a circle I had never been on before in my life. I didn't even know it was there. I had turned too soon. The one I wanted was just a few hundred yards further up. It didn't help me at all. Furthermore, by the time I got onto the right route, traffic was all gone anyway. Um, you might think, well, isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit directed Simeon? How I wish he would lead me that way. Well, the reality is, he's trying. But all he can do is offer his direction, his leadership. What distinguishes Simeon is that apparently, at least in the instances recorded in this passage, he followed. The example for us then is follow the Holy Spirit like Simeon did. He was no super spiritual person. He had all the same temptations we do. He had his own ideas of the best way to go. But he apparently followed the Holy Spirit. Follow the Spirit as he's trying to lead you. He's trying to help you serve Christ. And he's only one member of the Trinity actively involved here at the birth of Christ. And even in this scene, as, as Simeon uh, sees Mary and Joseph with their baby and recognizes that this is the one, this is the Messiah, uh, he, he rushes over and, and our, our translation says he took him uh, that wouldn't go over real well in our day, would it? Somebody rushing up and wants to hold your baby you've never seen before. But the word here actually means more precisely, he received him. He welcomed him. 
took him in his arms. And what he has to say is that this child is, the, is at the center of the father's promises. God the Father has given information ahead of time about what this person is going to do. And at this point, Simeon launches into a poem. As far as we know, this was just spontaneous. But he has saturated his heart with God's word. And in particular, what he reflects And these next few verses is Isaiah 40 through 66, which has so much to say about God's future deliverance through the Messiah. And so he interweaves phrases throughout those those chapters and puts it all together into this beautiful, very concise poem about Jesus. Jesus as the center of the Father's promises. Verses 28 to 30, Christ brings fulfillment of those promises. He took him up, he received him in his arms, and he blessed God. First order of business, God deserves praise for who this child is. And he says in verse uh, 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Uh, See, that's where we get the idea. This was maybe his very last task. You've got to stay long enough to point to the Messiah when he arrives. And it's like he's been a sentinel on this lonely guard duty. And again, we don't know how long he's been on duty, but he knows that's done now. This is it. This is the culmination. I'm about to be discharged, that it does seem he's expecting that he's ready to go to heaven. But in that prospect, God provides peace. He doesn't seem to be a bit concerned about that. He gets the opportunity now to confirm the child's identity, which he does in verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, Simeon did not see salvation completed, salvation bestowed. What he sees is the agent of salvation the one who's going to accomplish it. Simeon doesn't have to be here for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ to already benefit from it. Every Old Testament believer could look ahead in faith that God was going to provide through the Messiah. That's enough for Simeon, uh, his His home in heaven is secure. He's at peace about that. Verses 31 and 32 goes on to say that Christ brings redemption. That's what the salvation is all about. He says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. They're standing in a public place. 
In fact, they're in the most public place in the city of Jerusalem. It's like headquarters for everything that mattered right there in the Temple Mount, uh, in the Temple precincts. A very public display. Uh, and, and that was the nature of Christ's ministry. It was a public ministry throughout that time. And it continues to be very public. Even as uh, uh, Paul explained when he was before uh, a Roman king and was explaining the details, and in that particular king, King Agrippa, he says, King, you already know about these things. Uh, I know that you understand these things. He said, because none of these things were done in a corner. They weren't done in, in a hidden fashion. It's all public, and that's the nature of the redemption that Christ brings. He, he arrives in full view. He'll carry out his work in full view. A light, in verse 32, for revelation to the Gentiles. And here Simeon does something remarkable. There are key places throughout the Old Testament, not very many of them, but there are several where God makes it clear that this Messiah is coming to do a bigger work than just save the Jewish people. He's going to offer salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. And although God says that explicitly, even passages that Paul quoted in the book of Romans, if you remember our study there, and yet for the Jewish people in Simeon's day, most of them had just read right through those passages. It didn't compute to them, and they walked away thinking, oh, no, no, this is only for us. Simeon gets it. He's been reading God's word with discernment. It's both for the Gentiles and for the Jewish people. What, he, what Christ provides, he provides for all groups. Universal opportunity for salvation. So God's salvation is open to everyone. No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. No matter what your background might be. What does it mean to be a part of God's plan, to submit to God's plan uh, from this redemption standpoint? It's actually very simple. The very first step, the essential step, receive Christ as Savior. I can't see the hearts of people. I don't know who knows Christ as Savior already and who might not? If you're not sure that you've ever taken that step of faith to trust Christ as Savior, that is step one. And you do not have to be concerned, well, I'm not in the right category. Every category God has included. You can be saved. At this point, I would imagine Mary and Joseph are thinking, isn't this wonderful? I mean, they've heard most of this already, 
back from the angels' announcements, both separately to Joseph and to Mary. Uh, they know this child has a great destiny. I think they probably were more focused on the immediate needs of taking care of this baby in the intervening days. But now this reminder of his great destiny. Oh, isn't it all wonderful? Simeon goes on to share with them for the first time that there's another side to this. And it's not so happy. Verses 33 to 35, Jesus is the center of each person's destiny. He is the determining factor. Verse 33 tells us uh, that his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, don't be concerned that Luke here refers to Joseph as his father because there's an important sense in which he was the father. He's the adoptive father. We know that from Matthew chapter 1. And so he is the, the father. He's not the birth father, had no part in that. But from that point on, he is the, the father. They marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them. They're going to need God's grace for the challenges ahead. But then he turns only to Mary, his mother, for what he's going to say next. Uh, the, the guess as to why the focus is restricted here to Mary is that the things that Simeon is about to say are only going to take place after the death of Joseph. We don't have any record of him being a part of things during the earthly ministry of Christ. It's always his mother and his brothers, not Joseph. So Joseph isn't personally going to experience what uh, Simeon has to say next about Jesus. Verse 34, Christ separates humanity. He separates humanity into two parts. He said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall of and rising of many in Israel. Some will fall as a result of Christ. Some will rise. Now that's uh, prophetic. That's kind of uh, obscure. But looking back on that, there are some that encounter Christ and the message of the gospel and through the stubbornness of their hearts, through their own pride, they fall through, because of their sin. And it's Christ that they stumble over. Through neglect or outright rejection, and it's a complete collapse. The fall here is a complete failure. This child, Simeon, Simeon says, is appointed. This is part of God's plan for Christ's ministry. He's appointed for the fall, how sad, and rising of many in Israel. During his earthly ministry, it was pretty much just focused on, on the people of Israel, but the rising here 
Whereas the proud will fall through sin, the meek will rise through faith in Christ. Christ there is the determining factor, how you respond to him. Those that rise will receive forgiveness of sin and it's a complete recovery. That way Christ separates humanity. Verse 35, also at the end of verse 34, and for a sign that is opposed. There's the first really negative thing about her son that Mary has heard. Opposed? People in Israel are going to oppose the Messiah? Yes, Mary. In fact, that is going to be the predominant response that he encounters throughout his ministry. Opposed. And it gets even a little bit worse. Verse 35, the first part of this verse, many English translations put in parentheses, I'm not sure it's parenthetical. I think this is really right still as part of the point of Simeon's message. Looking at Mary, he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, we don't struggle to know where and when that may have happened in Mary's experience because she would have seen, she was there as an eyewitness on the day that Christ hung on the cross. Imagine the sword piercing her soul at that moment. That was Mary's particular pain. But there could also be an indication here with wider application for all of God's people that the prospects for the future, oh, the Messiah, I want the benefits of what he has to offer. I choose Christ. There, everything's going to be great. No, with choosing Christ comes suffering and pain all according to God's plan. None of us like that aspect of God's plan. None of us escape it either. Why is that a part of God's plan for his people? This all seems to be related to the opposition that comes against Christ. We we face that opposition. Opposition, though, enhances the faith of his followers. We grow through that experience. It's essential for our walk with him in every aspect of, of hardship and affliction. We don't like it, but we benefit from it. At the same time, opposition exposes the sin of his enemies. When he says, so that the, heart, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He referred in, in, uh, just before this to the light that would shine for the Gentiles. Well, light can do two things. It can draw people attracted to the light who are in darkness, but it also exposes. The exposure of light seems to be what he's referring to 
at the end of verse 35, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Opposition against Christ and against his people exposes the sin of the hearts of his enemies. They are without excuse. We had such a a marvelous time at our church retreat at the wilds. Driving up there, though, uh, I noticed a sign. You may have seen this as well. I've seen it many times before, but because of its significance, I always think about it, about what a big deal this is. Just the road sign that says, Eastern Continental Divide. I love that reminder. Eastern Continental Divide means that at that point, and it's a ridge, it's, it's, it's not marked in this way, but we're, we're glad to have it marked with this road sign, but it's a line that goes from Florida up to Canada. And along that line, raindrops on one side eventually make their way to the Atlantic Ocean and on the other side, just inches away, but they're all going to flow into the Gulf of Mexico. What a picture of the significance of Christ for the destiny of the people of this world. Those that reject him will spend eternity in hell. Those that accept him and follow him Eternity in heaven. What a contrast. And it all comes right to that point. How will you respond to Christ? Trust him as Savior. Submit to him as your Lord. Simeon actually used an unusual word for Lord back in verse 20. Nine doesn't look any different. There isn't another way to translate this appropriately, but this one is acknowledging the Lord as sovereign. Uh, we, we actually get our word despot from this, which has a negative connotation, so the translators couldn't use that. But it's, you are in charge of everything, and I submit to you. There's the response to Christ. I choose you, I submit to your plan. Your assignment for me is my most important responsibility. Even when that plan includes pain, hardship, disappointment, I serve Christ. Now, Simeon did what he did, said what he did, because God gave him grace to submit to God's plan for him. He offers the same grace to you, the very same grace. You also can be righteous and devoted and submissive to Christ. Would you ask for his grace as we close now?
Father, we thank you for the example of Simeon, which is more an example of what your grace can do in a human life than it is about anything special about Simeon. We marvel at your grace. We marvel at your son. Father, help us to accept the plan that goes along with trusting him as Savior. We need your help to accept the opposition that comes our way, the affliction, the the pain, everything that accomplishes your purpose, knowing that it's all for what is best. Father, we are your servants. We acknowledge you as our master. We thank you for the privilege of being your servants. Help us to serve faithfully, to submit fully. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.